and welcome to From the EBPL Archives, Encore Presentations from the East Brunswick Public Library. I am your host, Melissa Hosick. This event was presented as part of our Just for the Health of It initiative. Just for the Health of It is a proprietary health literacy program developed by the East Brunswick Public Library to promote health literacy in Middlesex County. To learn more, visit justforthehealthofit.org. Now, enjoy the program. Welcome, and thank you for joining us this afternoon. My name is Kathy Chern, and I am a consumer health librarian at East Brunswick Public Library. This Lunch and Learn presentation is sponsored by Princeton Radiation Oncology, Regional Cancer Care Associates Central Jersey Division, Aura Dermatology, and the Library's Just for the Health of It initiative to promote community health and wellness. Today's speakers are Dr. John Bauman, Radiation Oncologist at Princeton Radiation Oncology, Dr. Darshan Vidya, Dermatologist at Aura Dermatology, and Dr. Samir Desai, Medical Oncologist at Regional Cancer Care Associates, Central Jersey. Before I turn things over to today's speakers, I would like to ask you to please mute your microphone and turn off your video. If you have any questions, please type them into the chat box. Our presenters will answer questions at the end of the talk. Please note, the doctors presenting will not be able to offer personal medical advice to attendees during this program. Please be aware that this talk is being recorded and will be posted online at the library's YouTube page at ebpl.org YouTube. And without further ado, I shall turn things over to the doctors. Good afternoon. Uh, and thank you, Kathy, for organizing this program. This is the last in a series of six Lunch and Learn programs related to cancer care during the COVID pandemic. Today, we will be discussing the many facets of skin cancer. This is a perfect time as the summer is just around the corner, and I'm sure many of you are eager to get into the sun. My name is Samir Desai, and I'm a medical oncologist, and I'm privileged to have Dr. John Bauman and Dr. Dershan Vaidya here with me. Dr. Bauman is a radiation oncologist with Princeton Radiation Oncology, and Dr. Vaidya is a dermatologist with Orma Dermatology. Next slide. This is my practice, Regional Cancer Care Associates, Central Jersey Division. We have 24 medical oncologists and 10 advanced practice providers throughout Central New Jersey. Uh, next slide. I will start with a brief overview about, how the, uh, about the COVID pandemic and how it's affected cancer care in general. The pandemic is having a tremendous impact on the world and this country in so many ways. It has affected the economy, including work, business, and travel. It has changed social relationships and the environment. And of course, it has greatly impacted healthcare. In terms of healthcare, we've now had to learn social distancing, hand hygiene, wearing masks, disinfecting surfaces. And as a in the medical community, we've had to deal with shortages in PPE, ICU beds, ventilators, and staff. And six months into the era, we have no effective treatment and a vaccine is months if not years away. The pandemic has had even a more devastating effect on cancer patients. Patients with cancer appear to be more susceptible to contracting the virus and have a greater risk of severe complications if they do get infected. The former is likely due to more frequent visits to offices and hospitals, and the latter is due to their immunocompromised status and frequent greater comorbidities. Cancer patients who undergo surgery have a higher risk of post-operative complications and mortality. Cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy have higher risk of severe complications, including infections, hospitalizations, and death. Therefore, paramount to our strategy has been protecting our cancer patients from COVID-19 infection. Next slide, please. As a cancer community, we have taken many steps to try and mitigate the risk of COVID-19 to our patients. We now pre-screen all patients coming into the offices, usually by a telephone call the day before the visit and asking about symptoms of infection, any potential exposure to patients, and any travel history. 
if there's any risk of infection, we delay visits um, and sometimes use offsite testing. Patients who come to the office are temperature checked prior to the entry into the office. All patients undergoing elective surgery are tested for COVID prior to the surgery. We have largely moved to telemedicine visits using video conference platforms whenever possible. This has substantially reduced the number of patients having to come to the office. We have made considerable changes to protect our staff and all healthcare workers, including personal protective equipment. We have also allowed many non-clinical staff to work remotely from home. We try and minimize clinical staff who have to interact with patients. We have enforced strict stay at home and return to work guidelines. And we have a limit to visitors coming with patients to the appointment. Finally, we have worked hard to prevent patients from having to go to the hospital whenever feasible. In terms of um, changes that we have done to testing strategies, we routine screening exams such as mammograms and colonoscopies have largely been on hold for the past several months. When procedures are required for diagnosis of cancer, we use the least invasive procedure that poses the lowest risk of infection. For instance, CT-guided biopsies are preferred over bronchoscopy. Sometimes if we can use liquid biopsies instead of uh, standard biopsies, we use that. When it comes to determining how patients are responding to treatment, we've been also trying to limit the number of scans and we often will use tumor markers instead of um, uh, scans. <clears throat> Next slide, please. In surgical oncology, we have been prioritizing essential and urgent surgeries. Therefore, surgeries that are not likely to have an impact if delayed by six to eight weeks have been postponed. When possible, surgeries are moved into surgery centers rather than hospitals. In radiation oncology, we have been prioritizing patients with emergencies such as metastases to the brain or spinal cord. If possible, we use shorter courses of radiation. And again, if possible, we delay initiation of new patients and prioritize completion of patients who have already started. Next slide. In medical oncology, we have been trying to limit the number of patients receiving chemotherapy, and if possible, to switch to oral regimens, we've been doing that. We are trying to use less frequent dosing intervals if it is safe. If patients are eligible for hormonal treatments, biologic treatments, targeted therapy or immunotherapy, rather than chemotherapy, we are switching regimens. In general, we favor oral treatments over injections and injections over IV treatments. I cannot overemphasize the importance of wellness and stress management for patients, caregivers, and healthcare workers during this pandemic. These are unprecedented times. The pandemic has, has had a devastating emotional impact on all of us. Feeling worried, scared, and confused is common. The importance of a balanced diet, adequate sleep, and regular activity and exercise is crucial. Consultation with medical health providers is encouraged. Next slide. Occasionally, we have had to treat patients with COVID-19 and in those rare cases, we make important changes to the treatment. We have required appropriate PPE for patients and healthcare workers, including N95 masks, face shields, gowns, and gloves. We try to separate the patient in time and location by using special rooms and treating them as the last patient of the day. We minimize staff interactions by allowing only one person if feasible. We have required stringent cleaning and disinfecting processes following appropriate guidelines. And finally, a few words about future challenges. We are highly anticipating a large backlog of patients who have been delaying screening exams, diagnosis, and treatment over the past few months. This will result in a very large number of patients seeking care over the next few months. And the possible threats of a second and even third wave of infections is looming in the future. I will now pass over the talk to Dr. Weidler, who will begin our talk about skin cancer. Thank you very much, Dr. Desai. Um, I'm Dr. Darshan Vaidya. I'm a dermatologist um, here at Aura Dermatology. And to piggyback off of what Dr. Desai has said, 
Um, the the COVID-19 pandemic has placed tremendous um, strain on the medical system. And with dermatology in particular, um, you know, there is a huge backlog. I mean, skin cancer is the number one cancer, probably more cases of skin cancer than all, their, all other cancers combined. So we see a lot of volume and not being able to be in office, you know, for, for two months due to the pandemic has really, you know, um, created this, this backlog. So I, I definitely um, second that Dr. Desai. So as, as dermatologists, you know, this is just some advice on what, what you should be doing and what you can do just not during only the pandemic, but for, for the future in terms of preventing um, skin cancer before it happens. And you've clearly heard, you know, us mention this um, as a dogma, but sunscreen use. So the number one thing that we can recommend as part of a comprehensive skin cancer prevention strategy. Um, in addition to skin cancer prevention, it's also important to prevent premature aging of the skin. So wrinkles, sunspots, and thinning of the skin. And remember, tanned skin is damaged skin. So especially this time of the year, um, even going outside for a walk, casual sun exposure, you may obtain a tan, not necessarily a burn. Um, and while it socially is acceptable to have a tan, and it's oftentimes you know, in, in the media and on um, different TV shows um, glamorized, just remember that tan skin is damaged skin. And why do we recommend sunscreen? So it decreases the risk of skin cancer. Um, when you look at specifically squamous cell carcinoma, um, it can reduce the risk by as much as 40%, reduces the risk for, of melanoma by up to 50%, and it prevents premature skin aging. Who should be wearing sunscreen? So everyone, if you're out in the sun, put on that sunscreen. So everyone above the age of six months of age. Now infants um, younger than six months of age for various reasons, you know, um, we recommend avoiding sunscreen. You know, they, they have um, more sensitive skin to begin with. You know, their body surface um, area um, to skin ratio is higher. So they tend to have a higher rate of absorption. So in, in that population, you know, just sun protective clothing, wide brim hats, sun avoidance is preferred. How much to apply? Now, this is where I think, you know, a lot of us go wrong. Um, it's actually recommended to apply a full ounce, so 30 mLs or shot glass worth of sunscreen per application um, to get the SPF that it's listed on the bottle. Apply 30 minutes before exposure and reapply every two hours or after sweating or swimming. Why is this important? Because most of us put on a very, very thin layer and think we're protected. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, you know, friends and family or patients tell me, well, I applied sunscreen, I still got a sunburn. And the reason being most people probably don't apply enough. And even though it says water resistant on the bottle, um, you should always reapply, you know, after sweating or swimming because it's, it is something that will um, wash off your skin. Next slide, please. What kind of sunscreen should I use? So make sure when you're using sunscreen, it says broad spectrum coverage. In other words, it should be covering both UVA and UVB wavelengths. Um, sun protection factor or SPF should be at least 30 or higher. Now there are different types of sunscreens in terms of chemical versus physical blockers. In general, both are considered safe and effective. Um, the physical sunscreens are those that have zinc oxide or titanium dioxide and they generally cause less skin irritation and a lower risk for contact dermatitis. However, um, both types of sunscreens are, are very, very safe and effective. And I always tell my patients, the best sunscreen is the one that you will actually use. So if I recommend one and you don't like how it feels, if it's too greasy, if it's too thick, you're not going to use it. So find one that meets this criteria and, and use it. Um, and remember, um, Water-resistant sunscreens are not waterproof. And that's why you know, after you've been outside for a while, if you've been sweating, if you're in and out of the pool, important to reapply. Now, a question that I've been getting since we reopened a month ago is, quote, I haven't gone anywhere due to COVID-19. Why do I need to wear sunscreen? And remember, um, casual exposure to sun is cumulative. So even that outdoor walk that you know, we're frequently taking these days. Um, you, know, you may have more time to take a walk in the morning, maybe a mid-afternoon or even an evening walk. 
sitting outside, drinking a cup of coffee, gardening. Yes, even on cloudy days, going for a drive, working in the home office with windows, which more of us are doing now and will probably continue to do moving forward. All of those casual exposures are um, UV exposures. And cumulatively, this adds up over time. So very important to, to just wear sunscreen on a daily basis and make sure that you're protected. Another common question, does SPF 30 versus 70 versus 100 matter? Um, yes. In fact, um, the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology did a study in May of 2018 showing that SPF 100 plus was more effective than SPF 50 in protection against sunburn in actual use conditions. They, they looked at 63 um, subjects who were out in Vail, Colorado skiing, and they did a split face study. You know, they put 50 SPF on one side, 100 on the other side, and said, go out and do your normal activities like, like you would otherwise do. And they compared you know, which side had more redness, um, which side had more of a sunburn, and the SPF 100 side fared much better. So yes, there is an advantage to using a higher number. Again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, why that is, is because you have to use you know, an appropriate amount of sunscreen. So again, one ounce per application, a nickel sized amount just for the face alone to get the SPF it says on the bottle. And if you're using less than that, then you're getting less protection than you think. So the higher the number you start with, the more protection you're getting. Lastly, if I use sunscreen, I don't need anything else, right? So wrong, so sunscreen, as we mentioned earlier, is only one part of a comprehensive skin cancer prevention strategy. So seeking shade whenever possible, wearing a wide-brimmed hat, avoiding outdoor exposure during the middle of the day between 10 and 3 p.m. are all beneficial as well. Next slide, please. Let's talk about some of the risk factors for skin cancer. So tanning bed use. So obviously, you know, natural sun exposure is one thing, but tanning bed use over the last several years has been on the rise. And 75%, there's a, even one indoor tanning session before the age of 35 increases your risk for developing melanoma by 75%. Why is that? The tanning beds will increase DNA damage to your skin and it increases um, skin aging and not only melanoma, but it also increases your overall risk for developing basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and melanoma. Sunburns, um, five or more sunburns. Uh, doubles the risk of developing melanoma over the course of your lifetime. Uh, in terms of childhood exposure, one or more um, blistering sunburns as a child or as an adolescent more than doubles the risk of um, developing melanoma. So make sure to start those sun protection practices early on. Atypical moles, so greater than 10. You know, if, if you are um, a person with fair complexion, you have a family history of melanoma, you have light eyes or light hair, um, freckles, history of sunburns, um, and greater than 10 atypical moles, you are in a higher risk category. And you should definitely be performing monthly self-skin exams. And what exactly are you looking for? Think about the A, B, C, D, E's. Um, so A for asymmetry. If there's any moles that are um, asymmetric or changing, if there's any uh, moles with an irregular border, so if they're becoming notch, if, if you start to see streaks developing out of the border, if you start to notice a haziness in a previously well-demarcated mole. C, color changes. So if a mole is homogeneous in color, it's uniformly brown, great. If you start to notice different shades of brown, gray, black, um, that's a sign that you want to look for and bring to our attention. D for diameter, so changes in size. So typically a mole that's six millimeters or less, which is the size of a eraser on the back of a pencil, usually that tends to be you know, a mole that's reassuring. However, if a mole previously was a pinpoint size, one millimeter, two millimeters, and it's changing, um, that change in size trumps um, just the fact that it's less than six millimeters. So again, you always wanna be looking on a monthly basis. And lastly, E for evolution. So any mole that undergoes bleeding, you know, crusting, becomes raised, starts to itch. So any changes that are out of the ordinary, again, could be suggestive of a mole that needs to be further examined. Other risk factors, light skin or light eyes. There are certain photosensitizing medications or diseases that will predispose you to skin cancer. And certain um, genetic um, predispositions 
you know, in families who have a history of melanoma, breast cancer, or pancreatic cancer. Next slide, please. So some facts regarding skin cancer. This is from the Skin Cancer Foundation. About one in five Americans will develop skin cancer by the age of 70. Uh, more than two people die of skin cancer every hour in the US. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, skin cancer is, the incidence of skin cancer, the number of skin cancers is greater than all other skin cancers combined. Um, about 90% of non-melanoma skin cancers are due to UV exposures, um, with the most common being basal cell carcinoma, which has about 4.3 million cases per year. Second on the list is squamous cell carcinoma at 1 million cases per year. Lower on the list, um, there's a rarer type called Merkel cell carcinoma, which um, Dr. Desai and Dr. Bauman probably see or treat more of than I do, just because it tends to be more in an advanced stage in many instances. Um, the incidence of Merkel cell carcinoma is also on the rise. And, and the worst of the, the bunch, melanoma, uh, 2020 statistics, we're expected to see about 196,000 cases of melanoma this year alone. Those who have ever tanned have an 83% increased risk of squamous cell carcinoma, 29% increased risk of basal cell, and six times more likely to develop melanoma. And remember, it's not just skin cancer, but 90% of skin aging is also caused by the sun. So invest in sunscreen as part of your skincare regimen. Melanoma in children and adolescents, thankfully accounts for only a small percentage of all cases. However, um, any changes that you would see in this age group also would warrant um, further um, inspection. And don't forget, skin cancer occurs in patients of all skin types. So don't assume you won't get skin cancer because you can tan or because you have a darker complexion. It presents differently, um, it has a different prognosis, uh, but remember, you know, we're all susceptible to it. But what's the good news? You know, I've shared a lot of, a lot of the bad news and uh, the good news is that early detection can be curative. Um, for melanoma in particular, 99% five-year survival for early stage melanoma, as I'm sure Dr. Desai will discuss in his further slides. Next slide. So what are some of the things that you should be looking for that you know, if you see, bring to our attention? Um, actinic keratosis, this is the most common precancerous lesion that we see. You know, up to 60 million um, Americans uh, will be diagnosed with actinic keratosis on a given year. Generally, this is a rough, you know, reddish or reddish brown scaly spot that will appear on sun damaged skin. So areas like the top of the ears, the face, the neck, the back of the hands, forearms. Um, so these are the most common areas where you'll see it. Um, they may be rough to the feel. You may not necessarily see much, but you may experience that rough texture and they're often um, tender to the touch. Um, the reason why these are important is because they can progress to squamous cell carcinoma. And depending on the study you read, um, it varies from between one to 16% um, progression. So important to treat at this stage before it turns to anything worse. Basal cell carcinomas, which are the most common skin cancer um, at about 4 million cases per year, they can have multiple um, presentations. So they can look like open sores, as you see above. They can look like pearly or shiny bumps, like you see on the picture below. They can be scar-like in appearance. They can be pigmented. So again, if you see something on sun-damaged skin that is not healing or something that keeps changing over time, um, bring that to our attention. Thankfully, basal cell um, rarely metastasizes, but however, they can grow locally and they can invade local tissue and they can, they can cause a lot of morbidity. So important to treat sooner rather than later. Um, squamous cell carcinoma, which is on the top right of the screen, is the second most common type of skin cancer we see. And it can also have various presentations. Um, it can look like a wart-like growth. It can look like an ulcerated or non-healing plaque. You know, again, you see, you know, it can appear on areas like the lip. Um, they, they can also um, develop as volcano-like nodules, and as well as many other presentations. You know, uh, in many instances, um, an actinic keratosis, like you see on the top left, may have features of squamous cell carcinoma, um, and it can, they can look very, very similar. Squamous cell, unlike basal cell carcinoma, tends to be a little bit more aggressive in certain populations and can result in, in metastasis and death. So there's about 15,000 deaths per year annually in the United States. 
and it's usually a higher incidence in patients who are transplant patients um, than those who have other risk factors such as smoking, um, tobacco chewing, um, beetle nut chewing, especially in certain um, populations. And then lastly, melanoma. It's the least common, thankfully, but the most deadly form of skin cancer. Um, only 20 to 30% um, arise from existing moles. A majority of these, 70 to 80%, arrive de novo. In other words, um, in previously normal appearing skin, you may see something that just appears out of the blue and it's changing. Remember the ABCDs that we discussed and remember some of the risk factors that we discussed. So you should always be looking at your skin for anything that does not look right. So if you look at the, the top um, series of pictures, you'll notice that there's moles that have different colors, different shapes, you know, um, irregular borders. Um, if you look at the middle picture, it kind of encompasses all the ABCDs. And one thing that I want to stress for you is that melanoma does not have to be brown in color. So if you see a pinkish red bleeding nodule like you see on the bottom, get it checked out. Um, there's something called amelanotic melanoma, which means it does not have pigmentation, um, but yet still could be as um, concerning um, as a regular melanoma. Next slide, please. So for treatment, you know, what can I do um, in the office? Um, we will go over that, but the first thing is prevention. So this is the earliest and most important thing that you can do. You know, if you prevent um, skin cancers and prevent pre-skin cancers from coming up, um, that's obviously the best case scenario. So sunscreen and sun protection, as we have discussed, avoid indoor tanning bed use, um, performing regular self-skin exams to look for new or changing moles, visiting with your board-certified dermatologist annually for skin checks if you have risk factors. Um, if you see something, say something. Um, it needs an assessment. Um, uh, possibly a biopsy. For actinic keratosis, typically in office, we would offer liquid nitrogen treatment. Um, there's a device called um, blue light, which is um, blue light treatment, which is photodynamic therapy, which would be able to treat an entire region, so an entire face or an entire scalp. Um, chemical peels can be used for actinic keratosis and also ablative lasers. At home, there's various prescription formulations that we can prescribe for patients to use. For basal or squamous cell carcinoma, if they are, if they are very, very thin, um, very superficial, uh, we can scrape and burn them, the electrodesiccation and pure touch. In certain instances, uh, we can also excise these in the office, which has a curative rate of about 92% or higher. Um, at home, again, for superficial lesions, patients can, can do various cream formulations for superficial lesions. And lastly, there is um, a procedure called Mohs surgery, um, where there's specialized um, surgeons that will remove these cancers uh, with much more definitive margins. And in, in that instance, you can get up to a 99% um, cure for basal cell and um, approaching that for squamous cell. For melanoma in the office, um, early, early cases um, typically are treated with wide excision. Um, and there's about a 99% five-year survival if caught early. Um, there's some um, thoughts for different types of melanomas where most surgery plus minus um, a medication called imiquimod may be helpful for melanoma on sun-damaged skin. Um, but the goal in general is to treat here. You know, if skin cancers go beyond this point, you know, it may be necessary for us to utilize the services of our colleagues. You know, Dr. Bauman, you know, he'll be discussing you know, um, the treatment with, for advanced um, skin cancer as well as um, Dr. Desai. Um, and, and also there's various um, cancer institutes where if we need to utilize surgical oncology or sur surgeons to, to treat, um, we would utilize our colleagues. But from my perspective, prevention is the key. You know, we hope that if something develops, we catch it early and we can treat it at that stage. Um, stay safe from COVID-19, always live life in your best skin, but um, you know, enjoy the summer, but do it safely. Dr. Bowen, I'll pass it over to you. All righty. If we could have the next slide, please. I would like to uh, thank Dr. Desai for outlining the measures that we're all taking to protect our patients and our staff from the COVID infection. Uh, after doing this for three months now, most of us feel quite comfortable uh, practicing medicine in our environment with these protections in place. And I think that our patients should feel comfortable too. Uh, and that's something that uh, we need to get the message across. We are here to treat cancers 
we can treat them safely and effectively. And I'd also like to thank Dr. Avedia for his timely reminder that the sun is not your best friend and that you need some protection from that. But today, what I'd like to focus on is one aspect of skin cancer treatment. I want to present to you the idea that radiation therapy in many patients can be an effective alternative to surgery for the treatment of the most common skin cancers, the basal cell cancers and the squamous cancers. We go to the next slide, please. There is no question that surgical removal of these cancers is the mainstay of treatment. Uh, the most uh, elaborate, the Rolls-Royce of surgical resections is the Mohs resection, where the surgeon actually has the opportunity to inspect the specimen under the microscope to ensure that all the cancer has been removed. And uh, that's the reason why the control rate for localized basal cell and squamous cancers is so incredibly high with surgery. So there's nothing bad that you can say about surgery except for the fact that the surgeon has to dig a hole to get the cancer out, and then the problem comes in how they cover up the hole. And that's where radiation can play a role in certain selected patients. So in the next slide, radiation is often overlooked as an alternative to surgery for skin cancer. I did all of my training at uh, Harvard in Boston, where we treated um, an enormous number of localized skin cancers. And I found though that in different parts of the country, that isn't necessarily the custom, that in some places, uh, radiation is an alternative that is not even necessarily mentioned as a, an, a possible alternative to surgical resection. Can I have the next slide? Uh, the situation is well illustrated uh, from a statement that was made by the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Now, these are the folks who collect panels of experts from different uh, medical specialties, and they sit together and try to hash out what they think are appropriate treatments for all the various kinds of cancer. And in 2012, they assembled a panel of experts to try to determine what the proper treatment should be for these basal cell and squamous skin cancers. And they found, I think to their astonishment, that of all their cancer sites, the largest source of disagreement among their panel of experts was over the treatment of skin cancer. And they said the panel divided into two groups. There were radiation oncologists like myself who were willing to use radiation for almost all skin cancers. And there were surgeons who basically wanted to use surgery for almost all skin cancers. So this initiated a big review of the medical literature by the people on the panel. And after they reviewed all of this literature, they did reach a compromise when the surgeons realized that when properly applied, radiation therapy does result in very good cure rates and excellent cosmetic outcomes. Next slide, please. Now it's long been known that potentially curative radiation was the treatment of choice for locally advanced cancers or cancers that had recurred after surgery and were beyond the limits of other treatment modalities, yet still localized and potentially curative. Next slide, please. This is an example of a large cancer that recurred on the scalp surgery. And with the application of radiation therapy, we were able to control even this large lesion, as you can see in the next slide. And let's look at the next slide. Here is another example. And you would be surprised that in this day and age, there are still people who come to us with very advanced skin cancers. You wonder how they possibly failed to show up for treatment earlier, but they do, they come in like this. And here you see before and after radiation pictures, again, demonstrating what radiation oncologists have long known, which is that even locally advanced cancers can often be cured with the application of radiation and often with a very good cosmetic result. Next slide, please. These are the outcomes for locally advanced squamous cancers 
from one center as reported in our journal. And you can see that even tumors that are more than two inches in diameter were controlled locally if they hadn't been previously treated in a large proportion of patients. And even if they were recurrent after having previously been treated by surgical techniques, they could still often be controlled even if they invaded bone or underlying cartilage. The next slide shows the radiation results for locally advanced basal cell cancers, where the results are even better than they are for squamous cancers. So can we have the next slide? So given the ability of radiation treatments to control advanced skin cancers, it shouldn't take any of us by surprise that these radiation treatments are also pretty effective for controlling early stage skin cancers. And this is just an illustration of a patient with a small basal cell cancer on their nose, and they were controlled with an excellent cosmetic result with the use of localized radiation treatments. Can I have the next slide? This is another illustration of a person who had a cancer on their lower eyelid, and you can see that that has been eradicated with radiation, leaving the eyelid uh, functionally intact and with a good cosmetic result. Next slide illustrates an example of a lesion located just uh, in the front of the ear where once again, the radiation treatments were able to control this relatively early cancer. Next slide, please. Here's another skin cancer on the nose, treated with local treatment, limited to the area that you see outlined with the, uh, the little ink marks. So only a small part of the body was treated and this successfully eradicated this small skin cancer. Next slide. Even the cancers that are sort of midway between the very advanced and the small localized cancers can usually be controlled with radiation. Next slide provides another example of a larger skin cancer on the nose that was controlled with a very good cosmetic result. Could I have the next slide, please? And here is another cancer on the eyelid. Now you notice that almost all of the cases that I've presented deal with cancers that are on the eyelids, the nose, the ears. And these are the areas where radiation often comes into its own because surgical resection in some of these areas can result in a functional deformity. If you cut out a big chunk of the eyelid, it closes down the eyelid and uh, makes it harder to get your eyes completely open. If you have to remove a cancer from the ear, it sometimes leaves a nice notch in your ear. And in the nose, where you don't have any loose skin that they can easily bring together to stitch up, you often need a surgical graft or a flap to close the defect caused by surgical removal of the tumor. And that can, in some patients, produce cosmetic defects, whereas the radiation in some cases can produce a superior cosmetic outcome to the surgery in these specialized areas. Can I have the next slide? Now, the outcome of radiation treatment for early skin cancers, basal and squamous cancers, from three large but representative series of patients treated with radiation, show that the control of these cancers is extremely high. Now, it's a few percentage points lower than the control that can be achieved with the Mohs resection, but it is still an excellent effective treatment. Next slide, please. If we look at just one subset of patients, those who have early cancers on their eyelid, we see from the uh, Massachusetts General Experience that uh, basal cell carcinomas have a 95% control and squamous cancers 92% with radiation without requiring any surgery. And in general, if we look at the University, the Washington University of St. Louis experience, 92% of patients who have radiation have an excellent or good cosmetic outcome. 51% had none of the delayed effects that we sometimes see with radiation, 
which can include telangiectasia, which are little tiny red blood vessels that form in the skin, sometimes after high doses of radiation, or some skin pigmentation or scarring of the skin. 41% had very mild skin changes, but 92% were felt to have excellent or good cosmetic outcomes with radiation. Next slide, please. The quality of the cosmetic outcome is very much determined by the size of the cancer that you're treating. If you're treating these small early cancers that are less than a centimeter in diameter, the probability of an excellent cosmetic outcome is 98%. When you're dealing with those patients who had the very large lesions that I showed earlier, the cosmetic outcome is still very good, but not quite as good as it is for the treatment of early skin cancers. Next slide, please. So what is the patient's experience receiving radiation for skin cancer? Next slide. Well, this unfortunately is what the common man's idea of radiation treatment is, that we sometimes or somehow fry you or incinerate you and nothing could be further from the truth. I fear that that's the, the mental picture of radiation treatments that even many doctors have. Let's go on to the next slide. In actuality, there is no typical experience for the radiation of skin cancers because of the enormous variety of potential treatment options that we have available to us. On the left, you see a linear accelerator. Now, this is an enormous machine that costs millions of dollars. It weighs about seven tons, and it is a very appropriate treatment for certain skin cancers. On the right-hand side, you see something that's called the Leipzig applicator. And as you can see, it's a not very imposing device that for the treatment is placed in uh, contact with the skin, and the radiation is delivered by putting a tiny radioactive pellet into that dome. The radioactive pellet gives off very superficially penetrating x-rays, and at the end of the treatment, the pellet is withdrawn from the dome, and that's the nature of the treatment. So there is no typical radiation treatment. Next slide, please. Unlike most cancers, there's not even a typical dose that we use. The dose of radiation can vary in terms of the number of treatments and the number of weeks that the treatments require. Unlike uh, typical cancers where we could tell you right down to the exact number of treatments what will be given for a typical breast cancer or prostate cancer, skin cancer treatment dose regimens vary widely depending on the size and location of the lesion. And in general, the more slowly you deliver the treatment, the more you break it into small pieces as you deliver it to the patients, the better the cosmetic outcome. Now you can see that compared to surgery, which usually requires just a few visits, radiation is a somewhat more inconvenient treatment that usually requires multiple visits. Next slide, please. But the experience of receiving radiation that's pretty common to almost all patients include making some sort of shield to protect the normal tissue from receiving radiation. We often have to immobilize the patient. And here you see a face mask that was prepared that fits over the patient's face. We can't treat a moving target very well. So this ensures that the patient holds still while we treat that small area. And then we have to do some very fancy dose calculations. And here you see a typical dose distribution for the treatment of a nasal skin lesion. We have PhD physicists on our staff and enormously powerful computers to help us know exactly what the setting of each of those various treatment machines should be to deliver the dose that we want to deliver. Let's go to the next slide if we could. Now one of the typical experiences though, the common experiences regardless of how we treat patients or how many treatments we give them, is that all of them experience a sunburn-like skin reaction, which you can see in these illustrations. Let's go on to the next slide. And the other characteristic of radiation treatments 
that is common to all the patients is that the delivery of the treatment is painless, it's non-invasive, it doesn't require any hospitalizations, there are no skin grafts, and each of those treatments is very quick. A typical treatment takes less than 15 minutes per treatment. Next slide, please. So who should be considered for radiation? Well, obviously patients who are poor candidates for surgery. For example, there are some patients who require chronic anticoagulation, or halting that anticoagulation might put their heart at risk for a clot. The lesions that we typically consider radiation for are those that are more than five millimeters in size, and especially those located on the eyelids, nose, lips, or ear, that would require a skin graft or some sort of complex plastic surgical closure that might produce a cosmetic or a functional defect. For example, a cancer and what they call the commissure of your lip where the upper and lower lip comes together, if you remove a big chunk of that, it tightens up your lips and that changes the appearance of your face. And of course, radiation should be considered for patients who have locally advanced lesions. Next slide, please. This is a little illustration of the, the most common areas where radiation could be considered as a reasonable alternative for surgery. It is certainly uh, something that should be considered by many patients as, as an alternative so that they can decide after hearing all of their treatment options which treatment approach they wish to take since regardless of which approach they take, they can expect to have better than a 90% rate of control of their cancer. Next slide. Well, who should probably not receive radiation? Well, any tumor that could be simply removed and the skin stitched up, well, that kind of excision is always preferred over the multiple treatments required for radiation. It's expeditious, it's, uh, it gives an excellent cosmetic result when you can pull the edges of the skin together and stitch them up. It's quick and it's highly effective. For patients who are young, we generally shy away from radiation treatments because the cosmetic results, although they're very, very good, they can sometimes worsen over time. So you don't necessarily wanna be treating uh, patients in their 20s and 30s. If you have tumors in areas that are prone to repeated trauma, the back of your hand or your belt line, well, that's an area where after radiation, there can be some limitation of the blood supply to the irradiated tissue, and that could cause trouble healing if those areas are subjected to repeated trauma. If you have areas of poor blood supply, for example, the diabetic patients who have cancers that are located right in front of the bone in their lower leg where the skin is very thin, that's not the ideal place for radiation. It's not the ideal place for surgery either, but it's just a, a potential for wound healing after radiation. Patients who have high occupational sun exposure uh, may not want to have radiation treatments and then get that area exposed to the sun in the course of their work. People who have exposed bone or cartilage from tumors that are locally advanced that have eroded into the underlying tissues, or those people who have impaired lymphatics, such as patients who have big swollen legs, they're not ideal candidates for radiation. And if the patient is, has a recurrent tumor after having previously received radiation, well, they're certainly not a good candidate for radiation. Next slide, please. But the bottom line is that radiation therapy is a highly effective alternative to surgical resection that often produces excellent cosmetic results. It's not an option that everyone is aware of, but it is an option that patients probably should consider as one of the potential effective treatments in our extensive armamentarium for controlling these highly curable cancers. So thank you very much for the privilege of uh, presenting this information. Samir, we'll turn this over to you. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Bauman. That was an amazing uh, discussion. And uh, even myself, it's just so impressive how the results not only uh, not in terms of cure and control rates, but just the cosmetic results are so impressive. Um, okay, so can we go to the next slide? Okay, so I'm gonna finish the talk uh, discussing uh, the medical oncology side of uh, skin cancer. And for time constraints, I'm gonna restrict it to melanoma. Melanoma is the fifth most common cancer in the United States and is very rapidly growing in incidence. We anticipate about 100,000 new cases in 2020 and expect about 7,000 deaths in 2020. The vast majority of cases are caused by UV radiation from the sun. Some of the risk factors include fair skin, prior history of melanoma or atypical moles, and a family history of melanoma. The overall five-year survival is about 92% but it varies significantly with stage being as high as 99% in stage one, but only 25% for stage four. As previously just discussed by Dr. Vedia, surgery is the mainstay of treatment. Although now we know that uh, for non-melanoma skin cancers, radiation is a very impressive alternative. Next slide, please. As a medical oncologist, we generally get involved when patients have advanced melanoma. This is when the melanoma has traveled to other sites of the body, including lymph nodes, lungs, bones, and the brain. We often start with imaging studies to try to determine the extent of the spread of cancer. We usually do CAT scans, MRIs, and sometimes PET scans. We also perform molecular studies on the tumor to look for what are called driver mutations that may help guide treatment options. We then sit down with the patient and caregivers and discuss treatment options. These treatments are generally called systemic therapies and can vary from oral medications to injections and to intravenous infusions. In advanced melanoma, we generally have three options including chemotherapy, targeted therapy, and immunotherapy. Next slide, please. This slide highlights the tremendous advances in the treatment of advanced melanoma over the past decade. Prior to this, our only options were chemotherapy and relatively toxic biological therapies, including interferon and IL-2. At that time, the overall survival rates for five years was less than 5%. Over the past decade, there has been a steady growth of options in both targeted therapies and immunotherapy, which has dramatically improved the five-year survivals for patients with advanced melanoma. Next slide, please. The first treatment in this new era was a type of treatment called targeted therapy. We know that cancer cells grow and spread through the body using specific signaling pathways. These pathways rely on particular genes that are called oncogenes and proteins that are made from these genes. Targeted therapies are treatments that interrupt those pathways that the cancer is using to survive. In melanoma, one of the major pathways is called BRAF-MEC, and about 40 to 50% of melanoma tumors have a mutation in a gene that's called BRAF, and that allows the cancer to grow and survive. Scientists have developed agents called BRAF inhibitors, which target this mutation. Specifically, venirafenib was approved in August 2011, and debrafenib was approved in May 2013. Studies have shown that these, tumor, these agents can shrink tumors in about 75% of patients. Many of these work very fast, sometimes within days. The downsides are that the benefits are not long-term, and often the cancer finds its ways around the drugs. Side effects of BRAF inhibitors include fever, rash, joint and muscle pain, and sun sensitivity. Next slide. MEP is another protein involved in the cancer growth and survival for melanoma. It works on the same pathway as BRAF, but slightly further along the path. Scientists found that when tumors began, became resistant to BRAF inhibitors, it was often due to a MEP protein. 
This led to the discovery of MEK inhibitors. Trametinib was approved in May 2013, and covimetinib was approved in November 2015. Both of these agents work, uh, were shown to improve survival when compared to chemotherapy. The side effects include rash, dry skin, diarrhea, and changes in the nails. But the major benefits to MEK inhibitors turned out to be when they were combined together with the BRAF inhibitors. The combination of the two agents enhanced the action of each of them and led to even further shrinkage and longer survivals. And surprisingly, the side effects when the two were given together were often, were sometimes less than when they were separate. Next slide, please. I will now talk about immunotherapy, which has become, in, uh, has become one of the most exciting treatments in many cancer types, but especially advanced melanoma. Briefly, your immune system consists of special cells and chemicals which travel throughout your body to protect you from foreign invaders. In order to prevent an over-exuberant reaction, there are some natural breaks called checkpoints in our immune system. Cancer cells have found multiple ways to evade the immune system. Since they develop from your regular cells, they are often not seen as foreign. In addition, they found ways to exploit these natural breaks and evade the immune system. So immunotherapy, which is also called biological therapy, are drugs that are designed to boost the body's natural defenses to fight cancer. The ones we will discuss today are called checkpoint inhibitors as they work to release, they work to stop the breaks that are being applied. Next slide, please. The first in this class of checkpoint inhibitors are called CTLA-4 inhibitors. These agents target a, a molecule called cytotoxic T lymphocyte associated molecule, which are present on tumors. The first agent was called ipilimumab and was approved in March 2011. By itself, it shrinks tumors in about 10 to 15% of patients. However, the impressive part was that these, these effects can be long-lasting and sometimes permanent. The side effects of ipilimumab include diarrhea, liver disease, skin rash, and ocular changes. Next slide, please. The second class of agents are called PD-1 inhibitors. They block a protein called programmed death one located on the surface of your lymphocytes. Pembrolizumab was approved in September 2014, and nivolumab was approved in December 2014. Both of these agents shrink tumors in about 25 to 45% of patients, and again, the improvements can be durable and sometimes permanent. Side effects include diarrhea, shortness of breath, liver problems, and thyroid problems. Next slide. Again, like the targeted therapies, the benefits of immunotherapy seem to be greatest when the agents are combined. In studies combining ipilimumab and nivolumab, the tumor shrank in 58% of patients and were very durable and long-lasting. The side effects of immunotherapy are generally due to an overactive immune system. They cause inflammation of various parts of the body, including the colon, the liver, the lungs, and the skin. But they can affect pretty much any part of the body. We now have effective treatments for combating these uh, toxicities by using steroids. Next slide, please. With that, this concludes our didactic part of the presentation. We really appreciate your interest in the program and our other programs, and hope this has been helpful. We will now open the floor to questions that you may ask via the chat. So if you have any questions, please type them into the chat box, and please note that the doctors will not be able to offer personal medical advice. While we're waiting, John, I was just going to ask you um, uh, the difference between uh, protons and electrons in radiation for skin cancers. Sure. The, um... Electrons are the little charged particles that come out of your wall plug. And if you accelerate them to great speed, you impart a lot of energy to them. And if you then aim them at a person, they penetrate a short depth into the patient before they run out of gas as they collide with other molecules. So electrons are a way of treating superficially located cancers of all sorts. And it's one of the 
one of the things in our armamentarium for treating skin cancers because you want a treatment that unlike x-rays don't penetrate deeply into the underlying tissues. You want to confine the dose to the superficial layer. Protons are somewhat similar to electrons. They're the positively charged uh, particles. They penetrate a certain depth into the patient and then they release all of their energy at that depth, rather like a depth charge that goes off at a certain depth when the, uh, the Navy is trying to uh, attack submarines. So if you have a tumor that is uh, deeply seated in the patient's body, but adjacent to a critical structure, you can send protons into that patient and they will deliver all of their dose right at the target tumor and stop abruptly before they go on to give any dose to the adjacent normal tissues. Whereas electrons, by their nature, can only penetrate superficially into patients and therefore are commonly used for skin cancers, protons can penetrate deeply into patients and are used for uh, most of what people regard as regular cancers, cancers of the pancreas or the colon or deep in the brain, in the lung. So protons are not usually used for skin cancer treatment, which is good thing because there are only about 25 proton centers in the entire country. So we wouldn't be able to do much skin cancer treatment given the enormous number of skin cancers there are. But electrons are widely available. Uh, in fact, I have electrons in my practice at each one of our treatment sites except for our proton facility. So electrons are a common way of treating skin cancer. Protons would be very rare for treating the common skin cancers. Now, treating some of the uncommon cancers, like uh, treating a widely metastatic Merkel cell cancer, uh, that's a different story. But for the curative treatment of skin cancers, electrons would be preferred over protons. Okay, thanks so much. So we have a question for what do you think about Aldera for basal cell cancer? Uh, myself, I have not had any experience with it. Has anyone, either one of you have any experience? So I, I've used Aldera for um, only superficial um, type basal cell carcinoma. Um, and I believe that's the only um, FDA approved indication for it. it. It works really, really well, especially for a patient who opts not to um, have an electrodesiccation and curatage procedure or an excision. The, the disadvantage is that the protocol usually is an extended protocol over the course of you know, several weeks to months and generally results in a lot of localized redness, crusting, irritation, and so forth. Um, but the final outcomes typically tend to be excellent. The final cosmetic outcome usually is um, scarless. Um, you know, the, the results are great. And for the early lesions or for even precancerous lesions like actinic keratosis, I think Aldera has an excellent place in that treatment armamentarium. I have a question if I could for Dr. Vedia. Uh, do you routinely recommend the application of topical Fudex 5-fluorouracil uh, for patients with actinic keratosis as a maneuver to try to reduce their potential for becoming squamous cancers? Yes. So. Um, while we do um, treatment with liquid nitrogen in office for isolated lesions, um, I'm a huge proponent for field therapy. So field therapy with topical 5-fluorouracil, um, um, imiquimod, um, ingenol, mebutate, et cetera. Um, what they do is they treat even subclinical um, precancers that are in the entire area that you're treating, whether it be the entire face, the scalp, the hands, and so forth. And precisely for that region, um, when you get you know, 80 to 85% clearance of a lot of that background um, sun damage and precancerous um, damage, so to speak, it reduces the likelihood of it progressing to anything worse. So yes, Dr. Bauman, 100%. Uh, field therapy is very important. I think that's all the questions. Okay, so I want to say thank you, Dr. Bauman, Dr. Vedia, and Dr. Desai for taking the time to talk to us and for answering our questions. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this program, the talk is being recorded. 
the link to the recording will be emailed to the registrants and the uh, and the recording will be uploaded to the library's YouTube channel at ebpl.org YouTube. So thank you all for joining us today and have a great day and stay safe. Thank you again, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you. Be safe. Thank you for joining us for this week's Encore presentation. To join us for live programs or to learn more about the East Brunswick Public Library, visit our website at ebpl.org. <laughs>